Hi, and welcome to episode nine of the Conservation Crossroads podcast. My name is Carla Archibald. And I'm Rachel Friedman. And today we're talking about investing in nature. Like anything, conservation activities cost money to put into practice, and there are lots of different ways of financing conservation. We have a few upcoming episodes that will dive a bit deeper into some of the more specific conservation finance flavors, but we thought it would be useful to start with an overview of concepts and associated language. For those of you who know a bit about economics, feel free to skip ahead. Otherwise, time for Economics Lingo 101. I guess first, what do we mean by a private or public good? So for any product or service, there are different levels of access and competitiveness. A private good is exclusive in that not everyone can access them and they are rivalrous. So if I buy some shade grown coffee from the store, it means I can't buy the same bag. A public good on the other hand is something that in theory everyone can access and is not rivalrous. Carla, we can both easily walk to our local park and watch the same birds. Only I won't know what they are. Another word that we hear a lot is market. And a market is just a platform, which could be a physical place or not, that facilitates the exchange of a good from a seller to a buyer. The cost of supplying something like a birdwatching tour will depend on how much of a demand there is by the tourists, which will set the price of the tour. And finally, one of our favorite topics for environmental issues is external costs, or externalities as we call them. This is where the price is actually lower than the cost because someone else is paying for part of it. When you fill up at a petrol station, the price you pay at the pump doesn't factor in health costs from air pollution or climate change impacts, which other people or society as a whole end up paying for. Well, that was obviously just a crash course, and there are a lot of other concepts that we haven't covered. So we've added some resources below the episode if you're interested in learning more. Let's get into our chat for today with Dr. Adrian Ward about conservation finance. Um, So Dr. Adrian Ward, and I am the Program Director for Natural Capital for the Wentworth Group of Concerned Scientists, and I'm also... um, a member of the College of Experts at the Global Change Institute and a part-time lecturer at the University of Queensland. Essentially, um, conservation finance is uh, financing of the capital requirements required to support projects that repair and conserve natural capital, be that uh, environmental assets of rivers, be it soils, forests, grasslands, and of course threatened species. Um, And Conservation finance has been around for about 25 years as a term. It was originally sort of developed, I think, by WWF. Um, and recent estimates by McKinsey and IUCN uh, and Credit Suisse and various other sort of institutions have tried to work out how much um, conservation finance we need to restore the Earth's stock of natural capital. Um, the current estimates uh, are around about 200 to $300 billion per annum. Uh, which is a lot of capital to raise, but put into, I guess, relative terms, it's probably less than, I think the last estimate was 1% of the total 
uh, investment available around around the world. So it's it's not actually a lot of money, and of course there's huge benefits which come from investing in such uh, projects. In finance, we hear the term investment being thrown around a lot, but why invest in nature? Yes, yeah, a very good question. Um, well, as I said before, so so a lot of the earth is is degraded, as we know. So our forests, rivers, marine environments, etc. Um, why would you invest? Because that is, uh, I guess, the implications of the term investment, you're going to get benefits back and a return, right? And that's always hard. It's very, very, still very difficult for looking at the return um, on, for example, threatened species. For Australia, if we take a specific example, um, if we're investing in habitat for threatened species, conservation, um, we are in effect supporting um, Australia's uh, high growth tourism industry. Now we know, for example, and again, this is very specific to Australia, um, is that many people around the world are coming to Australia to see our iconic wildlife. Um, and we know that our iconic wildlife is actually fast disappearing. Um, so down the track, we can expect that Australia will no longer have uh, a comparative advantage in the world competitive advantage in the world in that we have uh, wildlife that people want to come and see. Now that, that's one way, that's sort of a bit more indirect I suppose, but more directly if you're investing in the restoration of a forest, the science certainly shows us that um, there are benefits um, for soil conservation as well for example and therefore that connects through to um, productivity of agriculture. Okay, that would be the benefit to the private landholders. But when we're talking about investing in natural capital, how does that change depending on whether we're considering the private or the public costs and benefits? Yeah, absolutely. So um, a prime example is the Great Barrier Reef catchments in that respect. So um, recent analysis has suggested about $8 billion right, is required to fix the major issues in the catchments. Um, and what I mean is major issues uh, for the reef in particular is sediment loads and nutrient loads and whatnot. And um, part of the, the solution to that is investing in riparian air replanting. Um, also um, fixing gully erosion um, and change of practice in what farmers do. Now, you're, you're dead right. So um, the private benefit to landholders in doing that is that, um, well, you're reducing erosion potentially. Um, but the negative benefits for landholder is that they reduce the size of their farms, which means they can less productivity or they destock or whatever it might be. And the public good, of course, is that we're securing an environmental asset, the Great Barrier Reef, from, um, well, we're relieving one of the major stresses on the reef, which is sediment loads and whatnot. Um, the challenge, and, and I suppose, um, how do you encourage farmers to do that? Uh, to change practice and, and to achieve those public goods. And now that's where economic incentives do come in. And, and I note what you're saying about private versus public good. But um, economic incentives such as stewardship payments can play a major role. And that's where good public policy from governments does need to step in and encourage that, that change of practice, I suppose. Besides direct investments, what are some other ways to encourage conservation or good natural resources management? So the government could step in and provide incentives, right? So that's the first. So um, the other one are market-based instruments, or MBIs, as we call them in economic terms. Um, and that would uh, include, for example, carbon markets. Now, carbon markets 
they're very highly politicised, both in Australia and around the world. But they have achieved a lot of outcomes. Um, I, I, in my humble opinion, <laughs> um, certainly been a lot of issues. But carbon markets, um, <clears throat> in particular in, in Australia under the Carbon Farming Initiative, um, have rewarded farmers for that practice change. And probably the, the challenge for carbon markets is their sustainability. And currently in Australia, it's the, the major purchaser of carbon offsets is the Australian government through the Emissions Reduction Fund. Um, Previously, it was proposed that um, the major liable entities under emissions trading scheme would be the ones to buy those carbon offsets. So it would be uh, the Pluto sort of pay scheme, but actually at the moment it's the public pay scheme. Um, and that's forcing in, um, effectively an internalisation of their externality, which is carbon emissions, right? And they buy offsets in the Great Barrier Reef catchment or whatever, trees which suck up the carbon and therefore. But, um, so carbon is a bit constrained at the moment, just in the sense that the buyer is government, but it should probably be those ones who have to internalise their externalities, so mm. coal-fired power stations or whatever it might be. Um, so that, that's, I guess, another example. Um, in developing countries, we've got other examples of um, incentives such and market-based instruments such as um, green bonds, for example, which is sort of a fixed income asset, almost a loan, um, we've got these uh, debt for nature swaps, which TNC and WWF and various others have been highly engaged in for a long time, where um, a country that's in heavy debt and is at high risk of default can effectively um, sell that debt on um, for a reduced amount to a country and be, be forgiven through an intermediary um, and then get some money back for conservation, that's part of the deal, and they've got to put money in conservation. Um, so that's sort of been going, and that's sort of raised around a billion dollars, I think, since it got started in the 80s. Um, interestingly enough, if I go back to carbon and sort of climate finance, that is around about, I think, 400 billion US dollars a year at the moment. Now, a lot of that still goes to um, uh, energy efficiency, renewable energy projects, probably the vast amount, at least 90 to 95%. Um, but there is a growing proportion in there that's going towards land management, sustainable land management, conservation. Um, to, you know, trees obviously absorb carbon, so they're in the mix. The other really interesting part about the green finance, climate finance, conservation finance, because they're all kind of connected, is that around 90% comes from the private sector. And a lot of people think that most of it comes from government, but that's actually not true. The vast majority comes from the private sector through green bonds and debt for nature swaps and payment for ecosystem services and carbon markets and all these sorts of things and direct investment as well. It seems like there are so many ways to finance conservation that I have to wonder if some of the barriers come from a reluctance to monetize or market nature. Well first first and foremost I, I do think it is a barrier. Um, <clears throat> I also want to make clear that I don't think you need to trade nature. And I don't think you need to sell nature off. And I think that's typically one of the misconceptions in a lot of cases, and it's certainly something to be wary of, is that we're selling out on nature and by including the private sector. I think the private sector in particular, has, it has a hell of a lot of resources at its disposal. 
and if it's leveraged in the right way, it can play a significant contribution to conservation. And indeed, a lot of companies do exercise um, genuine goodwill towards doing the right thing. Some don't, of course, as well. Um, but it is a barrier. Um, the other barrier uh, is actually just also um, the technical and the social and the political realities of getting systems in place. Now, I can point towards Red Plus, which is reduced emissions from deforestation degradation, plus a little bit of uh, livelihood stuff on the end, which is what it's meant to be. Now, Red Red has been around, has been developed by the UN and also um, various governments and private sector NGOs for quite some time. Um, and some of the, the biggest barriers to RED um, is verifying the complexities of the biophysical systems. Okay, so how do you measure carbon? How do you verify that what your a ton is sequestered in, in, you know, in a forest or if it's not, or uh, are the figures real? Do they contribute towards scientific targets and all that sort of stuff and also doing it in a cost-effective way and the other side is the social political and also legislative barriers um, enforcement particularly in places such as Indonesia and other uh, Southeast Asian countries and developed countries around the world is typically hard and then socially um, sometimes people just don't want to change what they do and we've seen the failure of red plus in some places such as Nepal um, because it's too much of an interruption uh, to the social system, um, so that's a big barrier as well. So, uh, conservation finance <laughs> is is it's it's a tough one to um, to implement and to get people to buy into it for various reasons. Um, but and there's various barriers to to it, both from a moralistic sort of point of view and also technical and social and legislative and political. Yeah, but I'm hopeful. We're hopeful too. Thanks, Adrian, for introducing us to the breadth of conservation finance. Yeah, that's a lot of info to put into the bank, right? Luckily, we'll be able to explore more conservation finance topics in detail in upcoming episodes. If you want to keep in contact with the podcast team or you want to suggest episodes, please send us tweets using the hashtag conservationcrossroads. We will also include all of the relevant links for this episode in the description below. We look forward to tackling the next big issues in conservation with you, and we'll be exploring paths forward from this conservation crossroads.